Hey everyone, it's Jim Cirque. Welcome back. Really appreciate it. I hope you're all staying safe, healthy, happy, hanging tough, getting through this, and fighting the good fight. That's all we can do. I'm hanging in there with you. So I'm excited to bring back Bruce Radcliffe, who is the Vice President of Strategic Sourcing at the Advocate Aurora Health System, 26 Hospital IDN in the Midwest, great institution, happened to be a patient of that system, and same with some family members. Uh, so Bruce is going to talk to us, give us his opinion on uh, how a large healthcare system is dealing with the COVID crisis, what the future looks like, what changes we can expect, what changes we won't expect, and some different strategic initiatives that the system is taking, such as buying into a PPE manufacturing company. I almost fell off my chair when I heard that. So, yep, you heard it. They are in the business of manufacturing their own products. Smart move, if you ask me. So anyways, I'm not going to go more into it. You got to listen to it. Bruce is just a very, uh, you know, easygoing, very high integrity, honest, very calm individual while he's dealing with this crisis. And I enjoy, you know, speaking with him and getting his insights. And so I know you will as well. So without any further ado, let's get at it. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Medical Sales Nation. Well, I'm excited because we have a returning guest, Bruce Radcliffe from the Advocate Aurora Healthcare System, Vice President of Strategic Supply. Bruce, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us back on the Medical Sales Nation in these crazy times. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Appreciate you having me back. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I keep telling you the, the podcast that we did was one of the most listened to and uh, because it just provides a tremendous amount of information and education to, to the folks listening to this on the commercial side. So appreciate it. Well, we yeah, are. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. We are in crazy times, that's for sure. So, um, so for the audience, Bruce and I have been communicating a little bit about what we're going to talk about. I've got um, a bunch of questions from the audience. Got a lot of text messages on uh, what, what people are interested in. Hearing from your perspective, Bruce, and from you know a large IDN like you guys have, I I think you had twenty eight hospitals, but you're selling two. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. So two hospitals are leaving the Abbott Aurora uh, system, so to speak. Uh, this summer is the planned uh, divestiture. Okay. So I mean, big system, a lot of influence, especially here in the Midwest, and. Uh, and your your perspective and your um, and the hospital's perspective on what's going on is is something uh, the audience is interested in. I'll tell you because I'm having these conversations, Bruce, every day with multiple people in different positions that are in healthcare, even even surgeons. Um, I've got a lot of surgeon friends that I'm talking to, so um, I think this will you know be a conversation like we had before. And uh, maybe I start this out with some of these questions I sent you. Um, the first one is, uh, what do you perceive are the health system's top three to four main initiatives due to the coronavirus? 
Yeah, Jim, that one actually is is pretty easy. I think, uh, you know, through the pandemic, uh, health systems across the nation have really honed in on what's important, um, you know, in, in this type of uh, you know, global crisis, I guess now. And obviously, first and foremost, uh, safety is uh, both patient safety and our team members are, or you know, staff safety are really paramount. That's probably the number one, um, you know, initiative out there right now is making sure that people are safe with both, you know, protective equipment, that patients are safe and have an environment where they feel like they can can come and seek the care that they they need and, and not get too far behind on their care, right? Because, you know, there's a whole different conversation of what does this look like six months from now? You know, how much care was deferred and what are the impacts of that? There's a lot of downstream implications that we don't quite understand yet as a healthcare, um, you know, nation, I would say. I'm not just speaking to any one health system. Sure. Uh, second is obviously um, <clears throat> uh, looking at, the return to health, right? So not just keeping people safe, but making sure people get the care that they desperately need. So during the pandemic, a lot of care, again, was deferred. So it's that reactivation or that return to normalcy, uh, even though that normalcy might not be exactly what we had seen, you know, six or eight months ago, it's going to be the the new norm is kind of the term that's out there. And then, you know, finally, the the last thing is always making sure that uh, from a fiscal perspective that, you know, health systems in general are, are going to make sure that they need to be financially healthy so that they can continue to provide care into the future. Um, you know, working with large IDNs, you know, we have some distinct advantages in general of, of you know, having uh, certainly lots of financial stability. Sure. But I do worry about some of the, the smaller hospitals out there or rural hospitals that, um, you know, this pandemic uh, really kicked them right in the teeth. And, and I worry about some of them of, of making sure that that return to normalcy uh, will take some adjusting. So those are kind of three main buckets, as at least I think of them from my personal perspective. Okay, no, it ma- totally makes sense. Um, can uh, uh, let's expand a little bit on the on the safety piece. Obviously, everybody understands what that means for your own employees as well as the patients, um, sure. everyone that's interacting. Do you see? See, l- let me give you. A, you know, a contrarian thought, okay, is that not to safety, but in this Corona uh, uh, virus environment that we're in, is that eventually, you know, I'm going to, I'm making an assumption, we're going to have, we're going to have a vaccine and um, it's, everything's going to work out. And a year from now, not, not three months, but six months, or, or six months, but 12 months from now, everything's fine. Coronavirus has been eradicated. Do you see the safety being that the cautiousness around that virus still impacting the safety? Or do you think it'll go to um, pre-COVID kind of care that you were always worried about safety? I don't want to, I don't want to say where nobody was worried about that. Everybody was, Sure. but taking it to that extreme, do you think we'll go back to that old normal, or is there really going to be this new normal about getting into a healthcare system, into a hospital? You know, I, I think it's somewhere in the middle, right? I think uh, once once you're kind of aware and, and you go through one of these, just kind of speaking in general, right? I mean, you, you can't unlearn the learnings uh, that, that went through this. So you think about innovation, you think about all the things that health systems generically had to do to both uh, keep up and treat the patient demographic but also how to innovate and be better and make real 
and other such. So there's a lot of implications that there really is a new normal. I, I would agree with what you're saying is, um, you know, some of the, like, I'll just bring up one example, like the plexiglass or um, some of the social distancing. I, I do think some of that will ease up over time. But what, I'll, what I will say is that the awareness of what could happen if another, you know, novel virus kind of were to, were to pop up, I think the call to action will be faster. I think it will be more organized than ever before. I think uh, the health systems will be more prepared than ever. You know, our clinicians engaging our communities. And as it becomes safer to do so, that's part of some of the heart blood of, of health systems today is that personal interaction. So I think there will be a call to uh, make sure that we'll always stay safe, but pull, pull ourselves back um, into the, some of that existed before. I know it's kind of a vague answer because I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how long it could be. It could, like you said, it could be three months, it could be three years. Uh, who knows? But certainly I know that um, our communities, our staff, our patients certainly have that call to be together uh, because that's fabric that knit you know, organizations like ours into one. Okay. No, that sounds good. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I understand it's, we're all, we're all trying to find the answers, but yeah, it makes sense. Okay, now you, the second point you mentioned was return to health because of the deferred care. And, yep. Yep, and thinking about that because it's a big deal, um, how are you looking at planning on bringing these elective surgery procedures back online over the next 90 days? Let's just use that time frame. Yeah, so, so the perspectives out there for, for most health systems, right, is looking at your throughput, you know, your, your availability of whether it's an OR space or floor space or ICU space, and then balancing that with, you know, the, the patient demand that's out there. And this is definitely more of an art form uh, than anything else, right? So, you, um, you know, large IDNs will be dealing with issues where they have hot spots, uh, you know, where certain communities have, you know, still increasing transmission numbers where you might have other communities that actually have no uh, COVID patients uh, within their four walls as it sits today. So really, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It is really a conversation around uh, balancing risk and the return, uh, meaning, uh, don't mean like financial return, but return as far as the investment in the health of the patient and making sure we end up with the best outcome, right? So, Lots of organizations are, are testing uh, patients before you know, pre-procedure testing. Sure. Uh, that, I think, is, is really great. That serves a couple of purposes. One is, um, you know, if, if I were sick with a virus like this and, uh, you know, my immune system's working overtime, I am you know could be tired, could be lagging, I could be about to become symptomatic. That's not a great time to give somebody an elective procedure. Sure, right, right. But then also, you look at it from a staffing perspective, is that's another layer of protection for our staff members, is that if we know a patient is negative, um, you know, there's just that extra layer of comfort there. I, I should probably say that differently to say, if we know someone is positive, we would much rather have them get through that stage, being that it's only a couple of weeks, give or take, um, get them through that, and then move on to the elective care after they're clear. Sure. So there's a lot of, you know, what, what's the old adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of reaction. Sure. So that preventative measure of making sure that we continue to keep our environments of care safe for everyone, whether it's the patient or the caregiver, uh, that's really the secret sauce to how you can reactivate in a way that's sustainable 
Otherwise, what you could end up doing is reactivating, trying to open the you know, floodgates, and then you have another outbreak or hotspot, and then you have to close it back down. Sure. And that back and forth is probably the most detrimental thing that any yeah. organization could do. Yeah. So really, it's uh, uh, Jim Scogsburg, who's the CEO of Advocate Aurora Health, has put it really well and said, hey, this is more like a dimmer switch rather than a light switch. So we're going to turn the dimmer switch up and, and adjust accordingly. It's not just a flip on and, and hope for the best. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, that's a great way to think about it. Um, I mean, today in the news, just this morning, they came out that, you know, uh, Arizona, I think it was Arizona, Montana, a couple other states are seeing a rise again. I think it was Arizona, they were seeing 200 cases a day, and it spiked to over 1,200 today. And... Um, uh, the stock market is uh, the futures are pointing down about 900 points because of that. So to that point, that dimmer switch because you don't know what's going to happen in the future with this. So totally get right. it. Now from a fiscal side, so it's interesting. Like you said, you're a large hospital system, very strong. But you mentioned these rural hospitals. Um, like you said, you worry about them. I do as well. I worry for the people that are getting care out there. If they don't start coming on board and starting to do, I don't want to say get aggressive, but start, you know, opening up a little stronger than you guys might, they could find themselves out of business fairly soon. Yeah, you know, I, I definitely thought about that and I, I struggle with, you know, what would I do if I were, you know, the CEO of a rural hospital? And what I'll tell you is that the executives that I've interacted with, with from hospitals like, you know, uh, rural community hospitals sure. and large IDNs are incredibly patient and community centric. Um, so I, I put a lot of faith in the fact that, you know, they're looking to do what's best for the community and don't ever want to put their communities at risk. Um, so I think they're spending a lot of time doing some of that proactive stuff that we're talking about is making sure testing is available, making sure that they're getting the right patients in. But I don't know what they're going to do. You know, do they accept more risk? Do they open up a little faster than some of the others that have maybe the coffers to sustain a little longer? I think that's a great question. Uh, what I do know is that uh, those executives have always been, at least in my interactions, uh, you know, of the utmost integrity. So I can only imagine that they're wrestling with that as well of, of how do we balance yeah. uh, these couple of variables out there. Yeah, no, makes no makes sense. Now you you sort of answered this question. Um, I'm going to try to combine these two. So COVID has changed the way we do things. You've got to prioritize um, these elective surgeries and what really needs to be done, taking in the safety piece of it as well. Um a lot of people that are on the sales side, the marketing side of uh, vendors are, are really all over the place in their thinking. A lot of people thinking everything's going to change. And I've heard from um, so many people thinking surgeons are going to have more influence, are going to have less influence on how things come back online. And I'm thinking, as you and I discussed about a year ago when you when you first came on the podcast about the partnership between doctors and hospitals is, is stronger than ever. I'm wondering, how does this COVID bring you guys together again and looking at this healthcare and bringing those procedures on board? I think that's a good question. So I think the, the thing that I found most refreshing um, throughout the 
you know, the national conversation of my peer group has been transparency. And I know personally from, you know, my experiences and, and the organizations I've worked in, transparency has been paramount. And I think a fundamental um, foundation building point, but I've even seen it from other peer groups where, uh, to your point, Jim, that, you know, surgeons are at the table now to help decide what are the right procedures to bring back. And, and okay, here's what we have for testing. Here's what we have for personal protective equipment. Let's have a conversation about constrained resources and how do we best treat our patient, you know, population or our communities, knowing here's the four things that are on the table. Some are good and some are constrained. And so to me, I do think that that has fundamentally changed. Now, mind you, uh, I work in an organization that has been very transparent from day one, uh, in my opinion. However, uh, it's been a, a great conversation and dynamic to say, here's all the cards on the table. And it isn't finances, it isn't safety, it isn't any one of these things, but it's all of them together. And let's solve this puzzle as a collective versus, okay, we're going to you know, rely solely on the surgeons to say, what cases do we bring back? Well, we need to talk to uh, the, the hospitalists and the intensivists and everyone up and down the continuum to figure out, okay, what can we actually handle sure. as an entire unit? And that has been uh, something that has been really beneficial, and I don't ever see that changing. Okay. I think this was a great opportunity where we could align with a collective goal or collective vision and then have a very transparent dialogue to the point of, hey, here's how many masks we have, here's how many gowns we have, or here's how many, you know, whatever, widgets. Yeah. And here's what we can do and here's what we can't do and, and here's why, because I can't get my hands on that or I can get my hands on this. Uh, it's been great from that perspective. Great. That's awesome. You know, it's like a, a crisis like, like this will bring people together because it's a, it's a, uh, it's an environment we all live in, right? So you, you're, the docs are living in the environment with you. It's, it's no, yep. lo, no longer a private practice. So um, they've, you got to come together on something like this. So you mentioned something about constrained resources. And there is, a, as you know, a lot of conversation going around the, the usage of ambulatory surgery centers, so ASCs. So mm -hmm. how will a health system leverage ASCs with these constrained resources and with the backlog, as you said, these deferred care out there, how do you see that moving forward? And is that going to be, once again, a short-term fix or a long-term um, perspective on, on care and maybe reducing the, the overall cost of care? Sure. And this is definitely just a Bruce Radcliffe opinion. But sure. my, my thought on that one is, you know, the ASC is an ambulatory uh, alternative venues of care have been growing in um, uh, inertia and, and others for some time now. I think this only actually helps kick that a little more. So when you look at ASCs, it's, a, it's just a really interesting uh, venue of care where you don't have some of the you know, inpatients or the incredibly high acute, or the way my mind rationalizes it, some of the uh, at-risk population that larger you know, typical hospitals have, right? So... From one aspect, you can look at it as uh, not just a, a drive-through window, but also a very safe environment where, again, if you go back to proactive and pre-procedural testing, you have a quote-unquote kind of clean environment where um, you, know, you don't have some of the, the higher-risk population there generically. So you can 
again, reactivate a little faster, get people through and get them home. Because that's ultimately the goal is to get people back to home where where you know, lots of studies have been done to say people heal the best in their home with the right support, of course. Yeah. So these ASCs, I think, become even more important because they provide an opportunity to come in, get your treatment, and then get back home where, in today's day and age, you're both the safest and you also heal the best. So I think uh, the, the ASCs will be even more impactful in the post-COVID future as just a great um, one of many tools to get care to the right folks at the right time in the right venue, yeah. uh, which has been talked about for years now, um, but now we're seeing some real traction. Okay, so all, there has always been um, a reluctance to put, I don't want to say a reluctance, but um, well, let's just use that word, um, hesitation to move certain procedures to ASCs. Do you think now with this environment that we're going to open our thinking and try to um, push more to the ASCs that we might have been hesitant about in the past? You know, that's a good question. I, I think certainly the venue of care is being investigated now, uh, as it has been for years, but with an extra variable in there. And that is, you know, COVID or pandemic or, um, you know, a different aspect of safety is what I'm trying to say. You know, obviously, still very sterile, clean environments, you know, they're ORs. They're, they're the same anywhere you go. But that concept being of, okay, in a pandemic or in, what did we learn from this? And how do we apply this to how we deploy ASCs? I think every health system in the nation is going to insert that into their decision-making. Uh, I have not heard or seen anything, at least of, uh, you know, outputs from that. But certainly it is part of the conversation now of how do we best use the capital and brick and mortar that we have as well as the unique venues to deliver the best care possible. And I will say this, COVID is absolutely a new variable in that conversation. So it will be considered uh, for how we deploy these in the future. Yeah, and, and so, and it, and it goes back to that, um, like what I said earlier, could we get a vaccine and, you know, and this goes away and we don't have another pandemic for another hundred years. I, I just... I sit. I just sit back and go. Are we overreacting to the future, or or is this um, helping us? Like you said, what are some of the biggest things that we're learning here? What are we learning that we can just do better in healthcare? You know, if if this was like a a mock exercise, if you had a pandemic, what would happen? And it just seems that so many bright minds in this field on the on the provider side as well as from industry are looking at this and coming up with, hey, how do we deploy these resources more effectively? Uh, even, even if there wasn't a pandemic, but the pandemic is just pushing us there. So things that might've happened 10 years from now are, are just being moved up, which I think is healthy. I mean, any, any thoughts on that? You know, definitely. Some of the, the conversations around standardization are an interesting conversation around um, you know, preference item versus required items. So when you think about uh, nationally, right, so N95 is just a great conversation. Uh, historically, every health system out there has had a preference for which respirator they prefer, right? And, and that's fine. When, when you had the opportunity to choose, I, I think that's great. I think you'd re be remiss to find a health system today that assuming that N95 respirator is FDA approved and, you know, certified, that they wouldn't take them, right, and say, okay, no, we're going we're gonna to pump these in. So 
I think it, it created a really interesting conversation around what are the specifications that we need for the items that we bring into our, our healthcare system versus what are our preferences? Because when the chips were down and you couldn't get your preference, we learned a lot about what items were uh, acceptable uh, in a pandemic versus acceptable, you know, uh, compared to our normal day-to-day lives. Sure. So that's been an interesting dynamic to, and that's just one example, and I'm sure that will expand as there are more constrained products and resources over time, because again, think of this, this is a global wave and we see COVID popping up in Malaysia and not just China, but Malaysia is a great example where there any products that are produced in Malaysia in the next three or four months are going to have shortages on them because that country is now going to go through their COVID wave. We see Mexico growing where there's organizations that have production in Mexico, things are slowed down. So we're going to see this kind of rolling wave of constrained resources. So the concept of, hey, I can't get my hands on that has is a relatively new concept to supply chain. Yeah. Because in the past, it's always been, I can get my hands on it. I just may have to pay more. I might have to overnight it. Um, there's a new dynamic in supply chain, at least, where you literally, there's, there's none in the global market. Right. So that's a different conversation with a, a clinician of any level to say, hey, I would like to get you X, Y, Z, but I literally cannot. Right. Uh, in the past, you know, it's always been, well, you just don't, some people have said you don't want to pay for it or it's not on your formulary or you don't have a contract. Through this pandemic, I'm very proud to be part of an organization where um, the financials to protect our staff was never a consideration that was uh, impacted, you know, that was put out there day one from the C-suite saying we're going to protect our patients and our staff regardless. And, you know, we did some really, you know, uh, creative things to, to do that. And dollars have never been a part of the conversation. That's so great. It, it, it's just a really different dynamic. And I, I'm interested to see how this settles out over time. Yeah. Well, you know, I, one of the questions I had for you was on, uh, you know, talking to some of your vendors about supplies coming in from China. Um, and so, and just on this PPE thing again, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, PPE was on the news every 10 minutes, Right. We're not hearing a lot about that. How, how is that supply chain going right now for you guys? Um, so the PPE supply chain in general is uh, healthy, but always cautious, right? So I'm very proud to be part of an organization that we have not run out or have to go on without any PPE. Uh, however, you know, there's certainly, you know, new criteria for usage. There's, I'm going to give an air quotes for a second, different PPE, like I gave that respirator example. Sure. Um, we might be using something that isn't typically what we would use, meaning it's from a different vendor, it's a different color, you know, whatever that looks like. Um, but we have not had a situation where our our staff or patients have had to go without, which is, unfortunately, there are other health systems in other geographies that that was the case, right? They had a different level of, uh, you know, situation on their hand. So PPE generically in the global marketplace is still constrained. However, what I will say is that that panic behavior, meaning the, uh, you know, people hoarding and just buying everything they can, yeah. these pop-up vendors becoming intermediaries from OEMs, that's starting to dissipate a little bit, which okay. is good because a lot of the constrained resources was actually from every Tom, Dick, and Harry uh, 
saying, hey, I, I have a relationship in China or going to, you know, uh, an OEM. I'm just using China as an example sure. and buying up hordes of things, taking it and then reselling it at, you know, 2x markup. Sure, sure. So a lot, a lot of this was some people had great intent. There were other opportunists out there that took this as an opportunity to buy, hold and then resell at, you know, premiums once the resource was gone. That's slowing down. And now the OEMs are catching up. Uh, which is good. Yeah. Well, it's funny because on uh, <laughs> on LinkedIn, I probably got a an in-mail message from somebody trying to sell me PPE and or if I wanted to hook them up with people to sell it, I was like, this is out of control. I'm trying yep. to trying to sell me PPE and it was it was nuts, but um and that is that it's just like that guy that bought um I don't know, it was like 20,000 um, uh, uh, hand disinfectant uh, bottles and then he finally got busted and he had to give it all, all away just trying to hoard that. That's just terrible in, in these times. But, um, but now, so let's just, I'll, I'll make up a vendor's name, Medical Supplies International. They've been getting their PPE, let's say 90% of it from China. Are you having conversations with them saying, listen, I don't want to tell you how to do your business, but we have to look at vendor supply chains and how they're getting this equipment. So if this ever occurs again, they're having multiple um, opportunities to bring in the equipment, and it's not just from one source or one country. Yeah. So the, the analogy that I, the best analogy I can give is when we look at our four hundred one ks, right? We don't put all of our money into one stock. We diversify, right? So right. we're not diversifying um, our dollars. We're still putting them in one pot. But we have a few dollars here, a few dollars there, some up, some down, some higher costs, some lower costs. Diversification strategy, pretty simplistic. Uh, you know, Everton Roar right now, um, you know, to, to break out into my normal job for a second here is uh, if you read the press releases, just uh, entered into an equity position with a domestic PPE manufacturer called Prestige Ameritech. And that is exactly, Jim, what you're describing, which is we need to begin taking accountability for diversifying our supply chain on certain critical products. PPE is, is an obvious front runner for that type of work. So what you'll find in the future, and a lot of health systems will jump onto this, uh, you know, we put an equity position with, I believe, 15 other health systems uh, to bolster, at least in this scenario, domestic manufacturing of personal protective equipment. So sure. we are now proud owners of, or partial owners of a manufacturer. Yeah. So th that's that's a new thing. Yeah. Healthcare providers. Absolutely. Well, uh, that's interesting. Now, do you know of any of your peers around the uh, the nation doing the same thing? Uh, certainly, there's talk of it. I know of the you know the 15 that you know we banded together uh, to do this as one. There's ah. obviously that group. Okay. But there's. There's others out there that are considering it. I'm sure people are at different phases. I'm sure I'm missing out. I'm sure some have done it and some are thinking about it. But from that perspective, think of it as a 401k. We now have a piece of the puzzle that is domestic manufacturer of both uh, raw goods and the finished product in the U.S. But we still need the China. We're still going to need uh, Mexico. We're still going to need Canada. We're still going to need South America because it's about diversification. Sure. Sure. Because if we were to simply say, hey, I'm going to be a sole vendor of uh, Ameritech, you know, Prestige Ameritech in Texas, what happens if there is a, you know, a U.S. pandemic? Yeah, yeah. Right? So, so 
what what this has brought to light is the concept that long thin supply chains are inherently frail and it is smart of us as systems in this game to begin to diversify and bolster our supply chains and that goes all the way back to manufacture and that's a relatively new dynamic in healthcare at least but if you were to talk to somebody in pharmaceuticals uh so talk to somebody in automotive talk to somebody somewhere else they would have said uh, absolutely i have four vendors that build that bolt for me but i give them the spec for the bolt so everyone's exactly the same i just have four different people doing it yeah just in case. yeah no so it's, it's, a, it's a new dynamic for sure that. that's that's it's, it's impressive you guys move that fast to be able to do something like that, that's great. Um, let's stay on this on this vendor relationship conversation. Um, so taking PPE out of the equation, as we've already discussed it, I just did a podcast with the group chairman of J&J Orthopedics, and one of the questions I asked is, you know, what is he doing or what are they going to be looking at doing differently that's kind of out of their scope? Um and his answer, I thought, was fascinating. He said, we're going to help our providers embrace telehealth technologies. And I, I was like, wow. So J&J is going to at least attempt or, or, or go down a path of evaluating helping providers with telehealth. What are you looking at outside the PPE in this, in this environment with your vendors and evolving that relationship as it's opened up our eyes to different things, and how how are you seeing that? Yeah, I think you know technology enabled access is a great avenue. Whether it's telehealth, whether it's um, you know uh, predictive screening, you know you know there's all kinds of stuff. You know, the, I'm giving air quotes again. You know, the big data of you know are people taking their their meds? Uh, you know, can we see that based on you know the refill uh, behavior? There's just a lot of things going on around technology-enabled care I think is vital. And what this pandemic has done is added that extra component of, you know, remote or virtual technology-enabled care. We're looking for all kinds of different partners out there to understand, you know, how do we become better in treating our communities and meeting them where they are, right? So you think, you know, the Walgreens model was essentially to have a store on every corner. Unfortunately, with healthcare, we know that that's just not feasible to, to have that kind of capital where, you know, there's a hospital on every corner. Sure. But if we could technologically enable our influence and reach our communities with, you know, and I'm going to say, I don't mean it as a negative way, but like marketing campaigns, but targeted marketing sure. campaigns like, Hey, uh, you know, Bruce, it seems like you haven't been working out during this pandemic. You probably put on a couple pounds. Um, you know, you're due for your six month weigh in. You know, I'm just making stuff sure, up. Sure. <clears throat> but hey, hey, we noticed you're up a little bit. Seems like you're a little stressed. Uh, you know, let's maybe you should have an appointment with your primary care doc. See how you're doing. Uh, I think this health system is looking to influence our communities wherever we can get a hold of our community. And Technology enablement can can only drive us better. So telehealth, virtual visits, sure, and then you know predictive big data. That those are the big ones that that we see as important. I'm sure I'm missing some. Yeah, not, no, I know. It's just it's interesting with the the provider vendor relationship on how that's going to evolve. So let's let's talk about something from our last podcast. We talked about your um, how you really appreciate young startups coming into the market because it puts the 
entrenched leaders back on their heels. They have to become more effective or efficient, and it helps our healthcare system by driving new technologies. So there's a big concern in the startup community, um, and even your smaller companies that have been around for a while, maybe 50, 60 million in revenue, so not, not big, but you know, still a nice organization. They're worried um, about product introductions, and I was having this conversation with somebody because I was in the spinal implant business for a number of years, and um, I said, well, and this is the question for you, Bruce. So you've got another, I mean, there's got to be 120 spinal implant vendors today. You've got another new spinal implant with a new shiny coating on it that is going to claim that it's going to cause a fusion to come 10% quicker or whatever, okay? So to me, that's a commodity, and I don't want to bias this question. So, but then you're going to have products that come to market and potentially could let, – let's, let's use an example. There's a procedure out there. It doesn't matter what it is. Let's say it's an hour-and-a-half procedure, two-hour procedure. A new product comes to market that can take that procedure time, and it's documented with the FDA that takes that procedure time from – hour, half, two hours to 15 minutes to 30 minutes. And oh, and by the way, you might be able to do it in a procedure room or it's just quick turnaround. What, and so you're looking for OR efficiencies obviously in this day and age. Um, how, how do those, how do you view those two in this environment? I think I know the answer to a new spinal implant. I'm interested in these new companies with novel technologies that truly do have an impact. It's not a 10% better. It's a, you know, 100% better at even cost. It's less expensive and it takes up less OR time. How, how do you view that in this environment right now over the next 90 days? And let's talk about uh, 180 days from now. How you would want those vendors to approach your system? Yeah, so that's a good question. So certainly, you know, any of those, um, you know, significantly and rapidly improving technologies that give us efficiencies, it's the same story as before, which is we are very interested with talking with those organizations that can show us the, the benefit of their particular product of, you know, whether it's cost, whether it's, um, you know, quality, um, you know, whether it's throughput, none of that has, has changed. And I would actually argue to say with the return or the ignition or reactivation, whatever you want to call it, uh, those efficiencies have only become more important. What has changed significantly, though, is that fundamental call point. And that is that you know hospitals are... Uh, right now, rightfully so, essentially like Fort Knox. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. there's not a lot of visitors in hospitals. There's not a lot of uh, extra staff because it's a safety issue. So what I would encourage, you know, organizations, uh, one, I apologize that they have such bad timing that they're coming out with this type of technology right in the thick of this. So part of it is just, you know, guilt by association of, of you know, bad timing, bad luck. Sure. But if someone were to come out with, you know, something really – uh, sizzling hot in the next couple of months. My advice to them would be your your traditional call point of going to the surgeons, you know, in in the hospitals or in their clinic, that doesn't exist anymore, right? At least for now. So let's to break your question up in the short term, that's not an appropriate call point. 
In fact, you'll probably be shunned yeah. uh, just for attempting that call point by either their support staff or you know the, the clinicians themselves to say, hey, this is a little tone deaf as to what's going on. <laughs> I, don't, I, you know, I don't know you. I don't know where you've been. You're actually adding risk to my clinic or yeah. you're adding risk to my uh, OR. Uh, so I would say it's probably not appreciated. So what you have to do is, you know, think about uh, non-traditional call points, which uh, in my health system are are more traditional than average, which is get to know your supply chain leaders. If yeah. you haven't already, you're doing yourself a disservice because there's a lot of great supply chain professionals out there looking uh, for products that you may have. Um School yourself on how to position them to the supply chain. Secondarily, I've always said if you check in with the supply chain first, it's better to just give them awareness that you're going to sell uh, to their clinicians. Not that the you know they have to be the yes or the no at that initial phase because any any supply chain worth their salt will say okay you know that's great, but you know I need physician interest before I'm really going to entertain this because uh, there's very few product decisions that are driven by solely supply chain. Sure. There's always some kind of validation. Sure. So I would say get to know your supply chains, get to know a different uh, point of entry, and it is not the clinical environment. I would actually encourage folks not to do that, just to stay away from being shunned or being exiled. Yeah. Um, start, with, start with supply chain, see how it goes, because supply chain is acutely aware of the overall system strategy when it pertains to what efficiencies, what do we need? What financials? What quality outcomes are we are we lagging? If we are, um, and if you've got something that satisfies any of those needs, they're gonna want to hear about it. Okay, so well, let me ask you this um, this question. And I know you supply chain isn't gonna tell a surgeon what product to use or not use. Or your partners in this. If somebody came to you with something that was forty percent less expensive, took surgery time down to you know dramatically and um, um, just came to you and showed it, would you would you go, wow, that's really interesting and I'm going to reach out to some doctors to see if they would meet with you or I would just tell them, you know, about the product and maybe you guys should look at it because it could, it could really have an impact on our financial well-being as long as the product works and its quality uh, outcomes are, are just as equivalent. Would you get involved now like that because you're this this big environment that we're living in? Would would you do that? Yes, and actually I have. Okay, I've I've joked with a few um, organizations to say, listen, you know, supply chain can be your best salesperson if you have a product that shows all that value that you're describing. We, um, you know. As as good at sales as your membership and your podcast subscribers are, which is amazing. I, I could never do it, so I, I give kudos to the group. <laughs> um, it's a completely different angle when a supply chain goes to a physician and asks them to try something. Right. Like, hey, hey, will you try this implant? Will you try this? I'm, I'm making it up. Will you try this knee? Yeah. Um, because what I can see is it adds a lot of value from my perspective. I think it would add XYZ. Are you willing to look at it? Um, I have a few of those to my name where, uh, most importantly, I have a, a very uh, willing group of physicians that I interact with, and uh, my organization has been great allowing access to, to physicians. 
But it's a really interesting and fun dynamic when the supply chain comes to a surgeon, for example, and says, listen, can you try this? First of all, the surgeons are always happy to entertain the conversation. Two, um, you know, when it's blessed by the quote unquote, the system, right, the, the purchasing folks or the supply chain, um, they can also feel like they get to try something without, uh, you know, using any equity to do so, right? Rather than, hey, I'd, I'd like to try this. Will you look into it? Often clinicians will feel like that costs them something in brand equity. Uh, so they get to try something free. It's, it's almost like a car dealership giving you something to drive for the weekend and you never even were in the market for a car. Sure. Um, so, you know, it's not just try it before you buy it. It's just try it and give me some feedback. Yeah. Um, that's a great relationship. And I have found in, in my uh, experience in this game that those are healthy, very productive relationships when the supply chain sees something of value and brings it to the clinician. Okay, that's great. No, that's great to know. And what about, okay, I know that CMS has suspended, I believe, at least maybe through the year, on uh, quality initiatives or Medicare penalties around quality initiatives. And because of the COVID and the financial impact that it's having, what about products that will produce a better outcome by reducing it's how do I say this there's products out there that if used appropriately um, will prevent a patient from possibly getting like an acute kidney injury um, uh, you know in a well, well we're seeing that now actually these COVID patients a lot of them are having acute kidney injuries due to the disease state and if somebody came out with something that would help prevent them from, you know, from getting COVID to an acute kidney injury, from getting COVID and having a cardiac um, product, but it's not reimbursed, but the outcome is better. Is this the time to, to embrace those type of technologies? Or is that something you got to wait until the, the finances of a hospital come back? You know... So my, my easy answer on that one is if it benefits the patient, now is always the time. Okay. We'll let the finances and the quality measures be what they are. As long as that improvement is measurable, um, health systems absolutely have uh, a vested interest in making sure our patients are well taken care of. So if there were a product that even in the face of COVID were to minimize, let's just say, you know, COVID, you know, secondary issues, yeah. whatever those may be. Uh, we're in it just because Medicare has said, you know, hey, we're going to ease up on some of the quality reporting. That just simply means that financially we're not going to be impacted from whatever we report. The process and you know, documentation, et cetera, of, you know, whether it's uh, hospital required infections or any complication rates, that's all hardwired into the system itself. So even though Medicare has said, listen, you know, we might give you, you know, a little leadway on certain measures. The measures are still being collected and clinicians are fighting every day to reduce those complications. So it, that's great that we get a quote unquote stay of execution from some of the dollars, but the foundation and the process and the structure of reporting for improvement will still be there. Sure. So, you know, physicians aren't going to stop getting together and being like, all right, how do we, how do we be better? Uh, so I would say there's no time like the present. It's all about whether you can prove uh, that your product or process or technology will have some impact. 
Yeah. Uh, what I will say though is I have no idea because I'm not a scientist. How do you pull it apart to say, hey, this product helped here but didn't help there? You know, yeah. Maybe that's you know research. I, I don't know. I'm I'm not that good at that stuff, but. Obviously, if there can be benefit, we're interested in hearing about it. Sure. Okay. So, staying on this product side, um, once again, are you looking at now, I mean, you've got all these SKUs out there, right? There's complementary products. Is, you know, because of the COVID, are you looking at reducing some, I know you always are, right? It's something you're always looking at, but does this take it to the next level of going, we've got to reduce our overall um, skew numbers to reduce the cost to get more effective and efficient because of this? Uh, certainly financially, yeah, every health system across the nation is, is taking a hit, uh, you know, with, with COVID, you know, where the uh, more profitable cases have been put to the side, you know, to address the pandemic. And, the, and furthermore, the pandemic also costs a whole lot, right? I mean, there's, we're buying products for, uh, I wish I was kidding, you know, 10x what non-wartime yeah. prices would be. So it, it's both rate and volume. Sure. Um, so I'm not going to say that skew reduction is first and foremost. I, I think that is a lever. And I think there are definitely pockets where that makes sense. Um, but like for, you know, N95 masks would be an example. I can't reduce the number of N95 SKUs I have out there because I want N95s. Right. I don't care if I have eight SKUs. I want the product in so that my caregivers are protected. Sure. So it's just not a one size fits sure. all. But I, what I will say is there are certainly significant financial pressures. We are, you know, health systems across the nation are beginning to explore how do we offset those financial pressures. And what I would say is all ideas are welcome. And SKU reduction or inventory reduction is a consideration. However, um, it needs to be done you know, with a scalpel, not with a hammer Sure. and just say, okay, here's the right place because we think the risk is low versus, you know, Hey, let's have less uh, exam masks because, you know, we just have too many. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be interesting, but yes. So it's a short answer. It's a consideration, but it is not the only consideration. Okay. No, that's fair. So the big question that we hit on it a little bit about how to introduce a product to the market, but a big question out there for the sales rep, you know, the community out here is the ability to reps accessing the hospitals, specifically yeah. the operating rooms going forward. Because, like I said, I've, I've been talking to a lot of people, I, I mean, probably at least for a day for the last three or four weeks about this issue. And I can assure you this. Nobody knows what they're talking about, right? It's like everyone has an idea, everyone has a thought, and um, and so I want to hear from you what 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 you're thinking about rep access over the let's say for the remainder of the year, and then going into 2021. Yeah, so rep access, my thoughts will follow very closely with kind of the the generically the visitor access policy. So as long as we have constrained. Um, you know, non-patients in our hospitals, I would assume that most health systems would have a similar constrained vendor presence, whatever that looks like. Um, so I would say, you know, as long as this pandemic exists, expect some limited access. I think it will vary depending on the venue, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't think that's a good or a bad thing. I just think it is what it is. 
because I'll, I'll say this, there's, there's two reasons to be in an OR. It's either to sell or it's to support. And as cases move forward, if you are there truly supporting a case, you'll be part, in my, in my opinion, you'll be part of the required folks to be present for the surgery or for the procedure. If you're there to sell, I think clinicians and staff in general will make sure that you're not available in that OR at that time. So to me, it's, it's all about your reason for being present. And if you have a valid reason that drives uh, you know, incremental benefits to care, I think you will absolutely have access to, to you know, put your stamp on that patient's care delivery. Okay. Um, yeah, no, that's fair. So, so I, I listen to that, right, and I hear that, and I'm thinking to myself, there are certain cases, like in the, um, and I'll pick, um, I can pick revision hip in a 85 year old person. That could be pretty treacherous, and so you need some support in there. And thinking about the cardiac cath lab with some really complicated um, procedures that are going on, so, and there's others you're there to support, but you're not. You're not really needed, but you are supporting. So I, I question, is there going to be a hierarchy of need and the type of support that's needed? You know, from the cardiac, certain cardiac procedures, not all. Certain orthopedic procedures, not all. I, I'm just wondering, like I think of a, um, my biases, like a one-level spinal fusion, right? L5-S1. Not a lot of support there needed. You've done you know, 10,000 of these. I'm, I'm just wondering if you think the hospital systems will put that hierarchy in place or will it still be driven by the doctor saying that this is an essential individual to my case? You know, I think that's a good, good perspective and I haven't really reflected on that too much. So I'll give you my kind of off the cuff answer without, you know, thinking about it too much. And that is, I, I think there's a balance point, right? Where I think there's going to be obvious, um, scenarios where, you know, reps are just not needed. And I think where it will get sticky is because, you know, rep uh, being on site to help out with those complicated cases, the next case that rolls in might be a level one. Right. And if you're already there and already, you know, in, incurred that risk, so to speak, of having somebody on site, I don't know how you can say, hey, I expect you to be in the OR for this case, and then I want you to leave the premises for this case, but then come back in an hour for this case. Sure. There's something to be said of, you know, kind of like nurses will tell me that, you know, it's important not to take your mask up and down over and over throughout the day because that's actually more risky than just putting your mask on and leaving it on. Um, so I think it's more definitely of a conversation. I would love to get the clinician's perspective on that where I feel, my ideal statement of where it's going to be is that, we rely on our clinicians and they are driven to provide the best possible clinical care for every single patient that they see. And where I feel like it will really regulate is at the, the physician level, because ultimately the physicians are responsible for that patient when they're on their table. Um, so I would tell you that if I, if I were a betting man, I would say that it's going to be a, a much more of a surgeon conversation okay. with some guard with some guardrails of uh, agreed upon physician input into what are the musts and the and the nevers on the list. Um, and then obviously some gray area for discretion. Okay. No, it's fair. Very fair. Very balanced. Um, 
Okay, as we as we bring this thing to a close, what do you think are through this you know this crisis that we're going through that you personally and from a from a health provider perspective working for a great organization with the advocate of our healthcare system is what if what are the things the top one or two things you've learned and said wow this this really can be impactful moving forward anything you know I think the number one thing for me and my experiences has been around change management. And that is, you know, historically, and, and I've even made this analogy that, you know, healthcare is, is more like a, a, a freight train than it is a sports car, right? It's, it's slow, tough to turn, tough to speed up, tough to slow down. Um, I have to correct my thinking on this because through this pandemic, we went from zero to a hundred and back down to zero and back to a hundred in eight weeks, hmm. right? I've, I've never seen an organization been so nimble when it came to aligning at what's the best way to protect our staff and what's the best way to care for our patients. So I have to correct some of my you know biases that, hey, things just happen slow in healthcare. And I'll say things maybe traditionally happen slow in healthcare, but when there's a reason that's centered around uh, you know the patient and our community, we can move as fast as any tech organization you've ever heard of. Sure. And that is through an instrument command process, through, uh, you know, having, you know, consolidation of decision making authority to the right folks in the organization to just say, yep, make it so. And this is what we're going to do. You know, it's not going to be decision by committee. It's decision by, you know, uh, the incident management team. I've seen some nimbleness that I would never have bet on before. And I'm really proud to be, you know, part of healthcare systems that, you know, when the chips were down, we did what we needed to do. Yeah. So I'd say that's probably my number one learning is that it's not a freight train. It it can be a sports car when you need it to be. That's great. That's great insight. I love that. So, um, well, Bruce, I know your time's valuable. You're busy, and I once again appreciate you taking the time to come on the Medical Sales Nation podcast and sharing your thoughts and insights. And I know this will probably be a fast um, listen to podcast as, as your first one was. So, so uh, uh, Bruce, thank, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate it. Yep. And uh, medical sales nation, uh, Hank Toth, you know, good luck, stay healthy until next time.